Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you here this morning. What a challenge, eh? These believers in the Middle East uh, persevering in their faith, seeking Jesus uh, in the midst of persecution. And uh, yeah, we have it so easy in comparison. We can gather here freely this morning, a hundred of us, and just praise our Lord. And yet, even in, in our context, Satan uses other devices, right? To try and slow down the growth of the church. Uh, often he tries to bring conflict within. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to be taking a look at Acts 15, 22 to, to 41, the final uh, half of the chapter, chapter 15 that Eldon uh, began last week. And just taking a look at a resolution to conflict that began earlier in the chapter and then to another um, particular interpersonal conflict that arises at the very end. Well, conflict typically results in wrecked relationships or uh, the slowing down of the church's mission in proclaiming the gospel. From our text this morning, we see that God is able to use both resolved and even unresolved conflict to move the mission of the church forward, to see the gospel proclaimed in powerful ways. And so that's going to be my outline this morning. First of all, that God uses resolved conflict to build his church. And secondly, that God also uses unresolved conflict uh, to build his church. I'd love to pray for us as we dive in deeper this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the truth that it reveals to us, for how it reveals your son Jesus. God, thank you for the chance to study your word freely here this morning, God. Uh, Any one of us can declare in, in all sorts of different ways that we are followers of Jesus, and we don't have to fear repercussions of that. As we spend time in your word, I pray that you would that you would speak, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, uh, that you would conform us into the image of Christ, and that you would be honored and glorified, Jesus. We pray this in your great name. Amen. So God uses resolved conflict to build his church. Uh, our text this morning, we deal with the resolution of the conflict that started in, at the beginning of Acts 15. Just to refresh our memories, I want to read the first two verses of Acts 15. Uh, and our context is that of Paul and Barnabas being in Antioch, where they were discipling believers there. And then we have this bit of a negative twist. Acts 15, verses 1 to 2. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So I want you to catch how just enormous this conflict is. Luke writes us and says that they had no small dissension. The, the Greek word for dissension there in other places in the New Testament is translated, translated as a riot or uprising. 
Like, this is no small Canadian disagreement. Sorry, eh? Sorry. This is a big deal. And it's a big deal. Why? Because these Jews from Judea are coming in and they're telling the Gentile believers, many of who are new in the faith, that unless they are circumcised for the men, you are going to hell. You cannot be saved unless you also take on the yoke of the law. And so Paul and Barnabas, they will not have it. The rest of uh, Acts 15, verses 3 to 21, describes how Acts and Barnabas are appointed by the church to go with these gentlemen from Jerusalem back to Jerusalem. There, uh, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas, they all share stories about how God is welcoming the Gentiles to the faith without circumcision. James speaks up, grounds this debate in the Bible, and the resolve is that circumcision is not necessary. We are not saved by works otherwise, but by the grace of God. And this brings us now to the resolution of this conflict. And so I'm going to ask you at this point to stand up, and I'm going to read verses 22 to 35. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with their beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. So, our passage here this morning brings resolution to this conflict that arose earlier in Acts 15. What began as this, this heated dissension, this dispute, is resolved in this gracious, God honoring way. The elders and brothers in Jerusalem they send out this letter, 
And they come to the same conclusion as what Paul and Barnabas and Peter believed was that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. They, they do list these four other requirements, but these would have been requirements that the Gentiles would have been following, should have been following already to keep themselves from idols. And these would have served to additionally build on the unity between Gentiles and Jews. But their firm conclusion is that salvation is not by works, by grace, by God's grace through faith. I want to mention three positive elements that form and the basis of this resolution. The first one being that there was a unity in the way that the elders and the church went about this. The consensus that the church came to, um, we're told that it was the apostles and the elders and the whole church that sent Paul and Barnabas and then Silas and Barsabas down to Antioch. They were acting all together in coming to this conclusion. Then in verse 23, this letter that the leaders sent to the believers in Antioch, it doesn't just come from James, it comes from the elders and from the apostles, the leadership together. And then in verse 25, we were told that the disciples' first vehicle that they drove was a Honda, for they all came to one accord. I know that's bad, I had to throw it in there. But they're all united, right? The leadership working together, coming to this united conclusion that circumcision is not necessary. We're also told that this was a spirit-led a spirit-led way in which they came to this conclusion. Verse 28 tells us that the requirement that the church puts forward, it didn't seem good just to them, but it seemed good to the Holy Spirit as well. So the way that they deal with this conflict is seeking God's leading and guidance each step of the way. And finally, the church dealt with this conflict with due process and accountability. Paul and Barnabas didn't just have this dispute with these Judean brothers that came from Jerusalem and then just had their own way. No, they appealed to the church in Jerusalem as a higher authority. And then the elders, the apostles, the whole church gathered together, discussed what God was doing, how he was leading. And then together, they sent out this letter. Everything is done in an orderly fashion. And the result is incredibly positive. Take a look at verse 31. And when they had read it, the brothers that come from Jerusalem, they know that the church in Antioch rejoiced because of its encouragement. Imagine for a second that you are one of these Gentile believers in Antioch. You're relatively new to the faith. You certainly didn't grow up, you know, going to church every Sunday. You didn't grow up having heard about this. But now, more recently, you've heard the gospel. You've heard the good news about Jesus. And you found salvation in his name. And you're ecstatic, right? You're experiencing in a very fresh way the spirit of God. You know, God's blessings and grace. You're experiencing your salvation. And the, the freedom with which you can receive that salvation. But then all of a sudden you have these... Um, 
these gentlemen come from Jerusalem, supposedly coming from, you know, the mother church there. And they're introducing this new teaching that you have to add law to your salvation. You have to add circumcision. And that's just opening the door. What, what else could that entail? If we open the door to one thing, how many more things could be required? I think this would have been confusing, if not downright terrifying. Uh, if you're one of those Gentile men, I'm circumcised, and these men come in, they're essentially telling you, you are going to hell. You cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. And for you, you know, you haven't been brought up in this. These brothers, they've been immersed in the Old Testament at that point in the scriptures all their life. They're very knowledgeable. What do you do with this? Paul and Barnabas, they, Paul and Barnabas, they oppose them. But there's this, there's this dispute. And so when things are resolved in a due, orderly way, spirit-led, united, and then you read this letter, I'm sure you would have been ecstatic. This is good news. We don't have to add law to our salvation. Yes, we want to seek God, we want to live in His ways, but salvation is by grace alone, through faith. God used resolved church conflict in this instant, in a theological dispute, to establish that salvation was not necessary. Salvation was by grace, not by works, and He built His church through this. I think for us, 21st century, it's, it's so easy to say, ah, I can't relate, right? Circumcision, all of that. What does that have to do with me? And yet, the tendency of our hearts is actually to want to earn salvation. You look at any other major religion in the world and the basis for its beliefs is that you have to earn your salvation. There's something in us, probably our pride, that says, I don't want to be owed anything. I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be independent. I want to deserve the things that I have. We don't like to owe anything. But this falls short in light of the biblical presentation of salvation, right? God throughout Scripture is presented as this holy, perfect God. Paul in, in 1 Timothy 6.16, he describes God as um, the only immortal who alone dwells in unapproachable light. Our God is altogether holy. And then there's us. Sinful nature. You know, our hearts are wicked. And so we are separated from God by our sin. We stand opposed to God. And in between us doesn't lay just this, I don't know, nice three foot high decorative little fence, but stands this massive wall that we could never scale. Imagine for a second that you have this hundred story concrete vertical wall in front of you. This is no Berlin Wall. This is way bigger. And then you attempt to 
grab a chair and you say, I'm going to use this chair and, and climb up on it. And with this, I will be able to scale that 100-story wall. It makes no difference, right? Or you could go to Tawasan, to the Pacific. And that Pacific Ocean represents our sin and the chasm that lays between us and God. And you say in your mind, ha, I know how I'm going to get across. And you build a little paper boat and then you try to sail it across the ocean. How far would you make it? Nowhere, right? It's, It's futile. It's laughable. But by the grace of God, our works can do nothing in earning us salvation. Salvation is by grace alone. Christ has destroyed that wall. And that is exactly Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2. In verses 8 and 9, he makes such a clear statement about how we are saved by grace, through faith, not by works. It is the gift of God. And then a few verses later, he goes on to write more about how Christ has reconciled Gentiles and Jews with God. Let me read verses 11 to 16 for you. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you at that time, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, as Gentiles and Jews, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the gospel that Jesus has made the way, that there is nothing that we can do to earn salvation, to earn his love. Jesus has torn down that wall by his death on the cross and his resurrection. So, how does this apply to us? Well, let me ask you a few questions. What are ways in your life that you attempt to earn, not salvation, but perhaps God's love or his favor in your life? How can you serve God faithfully, you know, serving him, doing good works for the name of Jesus to build his kingdom, but maintaining a a love for Christ as your driving motivation? What kind of freedom have you experienced from God's grace and understanding that all the requirements of the law, circumcision, etc., 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 they've been fulfilled by Christ? We have that freedom, right, to seek God, knowing that's been taken care of. I think a great way to maintain an attitude of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us is, is to remember the holiness of God, 
compared with our sinfulness and that, that wall, that chasm that stood between us and just how God has done all the work we are saved by grace. Sort of this first conflict, this theological dispute, uh, it's resolved. The church is edified. Theology is clarified. Salvation is by grace. But then God also uses unresolved conflict to build his church. I'm going to ask you to stand once again to read the last part of our text this morning. Acts 15, verses 36 to 41. And after some days... Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. You may be seated. So if we think back, Paul and Barnabas must have been tight, must have had a close relationship. If we think back to Acts 9, Paul's dramatic conversion where he goes from persecuting the church one day to preaching the gospel the next day and then goes back to goes down to Jerusalem. No one believes that he's actually had this transformation, right? But Barnabas is the guy that vouches for him and said, yeah, Paul's one of us. He can be trusted. And from that day, they served God in all sorts of ways together. They went on different mission trips. These guys were developed a close, close friendship. But then things come to a head here. They have a sharp disagreement. This is what the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary has to say about this. So the Greek word for sharp disagreement, paroxysmos, is a rare and colorful, colorful word. It is used only twice in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in both instances to express the furious anger of God. This is no, you know, gentle, kind disagreement. This is, this is serious. Barnabas, on the one hand, he wants to take his cousin John Mark with him again on this next journey. He, Barnabas is the encourager, right? That's what his name means. But Paul, on the other, other hand, says, no, John Mark deserted us. We can't, we can't trust him already again. What if he just leaves us high and dry again? And so sparks flew. Scripture uh, does not give us a detailed resolution of what happened here. This is actually the last time that we hear of Barnabas in Scripture. Uh, we might assume or speculate that Paul and Barnabas reconciled. Um, certainly that would be my hope, but, but scripture doesn't tell us for sure. But what it does tell us is that John Mark and Paul do reconcile. In one of Paul's last books that he writes, uh, 2 Timothy, he brings up John Mark years later. This is 2 Timothy 4.11. He writes, Luke alone is with me, but get Mark and bring him with you 
for he is very useful to me for ministry. So obviously at some point, Paul and Mark have reconciled and they've worked together again for God's mission. But there's also two more immediate results from this disagreement. The first is that God in his providence multiplies the mission that's happening. So at first it was just going to be Paul and Barnabas together heading out, right? Unfortunately, they have this sharp disagreement, they separate. But then now we actually have two mission trips happening because of this. We've got Barnabas heading out with John Mark, and then we've got Paul who ends up heading out with Silas. And so the mission multiplies. And then we're told of a second result in the very last verse here in Acts 15, verse 41. And he, Paul, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is another very short Luke in summary. Luke does this throughout the book of Acts. I'm sure he could have told us all sorts of stories and testimonies about believers coming to saving faith and uh, people being discipled, you know, churches being planted and or encouraged. But we're told that the church was strengthened. God had used even this sharp disagreement to build his church. You know, we often don't see how God uses the negative for good. That's conflict or chaos, challenges of, of any sort. And yet we serve a sovereign God who continues to build his kingdom. As many of you know, our family spent the last five years in Manitoba where we saw God do some great things. We saw people discipled and baptized. Outreach happened into the community. The gospel was preached. By the grace of God, good work was done. But there were also challenges that we faced, particularly in, in the last year of our time there. Uh, in February of 2020, uh, the lead pastor of the church, where I was serving there as the associate pastor, he resigned. And so I stepped up into an interim lead pastor role. Uh, immediately after that, we dealt with an issue of, of church discipline. And then right after that, as the world is well aware, COVID hit middle of March uh, as a new as someone new to that position and responsibility of, of being in that lead position, that was challenging. I'm sure it was challenging for, for many of you dealing with ever-changing uh, restrictions, having to lead in a culture that it felt like you had no firm foundation and things were constantly changing. Later on that summer, the church began to get steeped in a theological dispute and division over the matter of God's sovereignty and human free will. And all of this was an incredible challenge to navigate. Now, fast forward, and um, our time at the church ended middle of January in this year. And as we're seeking Lord for next steps, 
it was so clear in how he, he led us to Central in the timing and the fit of the opportunity. Uh, people get to work with Pastor Eldon here, who used to be a, our pastor and has been a good friend and mentor. And to me, it's just been fascinating how God used a, a difficult, you know, even hurtful season and is now using that for good. Um, you know, we haven't launched a Harrison campus yet, but already we're seeing God open doors there uh, in the school, in the community. And we just trust that, that he is going to use all that's happened to build his church, to see the gospel proclaimed. One thing I find so incredibly encouraging about God is that God is still God in the challenges. Uh, he's still God in the conflict. He's still God in the chaos. A favorite psalm of mine is Psalm 46, which talks about essentially everything, everything going wrong in the world. Uh, let me read for you the first three verses. The psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. You see, the world can literally be falling apart. Our rocky mountains falling into the Pacific, tsunamis coming from the ocean, from Harrison Lake, and yet, I don't think I want to talk about that, right? It's a bit of a joke. But say that happens. You know, Scripture's admonition to us is that we still would not need to fear. We could place our trust in the Lord. And so church, this morning, I just want to encourage you with whatever chaos or conflict you might be experiencing, Maybe there's relational brokenness that you're going through with the friend or family member. Perhaps you're working through a health struggle that's you know, actually been ongoing and you just cannot seem to get a break. Maybe it's some sort of financial dilemma, lost income or, or maybe even a lost opportunity, a lost job. Regardless of what that challenge, that, that conflict, that chaos might be, God is still God in the midst of it. He's working for, for our good and for his glory. And we can do what Psalm 46.10 admonishes us to do. We can be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your salvation. Thank you that there's nothing we can do to earn your love, to earn your favor, to earn salvation, but that Jesus, you have done all the work. You've fulfilled the law. You save us by grace faith. Lord, we love you. Uh, 
uh, we ask that you would help us to seek you each and every day. Help us to trust you in good and hard times and to continue to tell people about you, Jesus. To continue to build your church for your honor and glory. Pray this all in your great name, Jesus. Amen.